This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We're uh, well on our way to moving forward with our LRT, and uh, it looks like we might have uh, taken one step back here. Uh, city councillors have decided nine to six to uh, take the stop. Well, I guess they were going to add a stop at Bay Street, and uh, the subcommittee had suggested that this was a great idea. After all, it sort of is the center of downtown. Uh, with it right being uh, right by uh, First Ontario Centre and such, and, and the art gallery, and, and, and even City Hall for that matter. Uh, they decided not to do that. Uh, not sure why. It's It seems that people who still aren't on board with this project are going to do anything to derail it. Uh, it's sad that we can't get to a point where, whether we agree or disagree, we've decided to move together on, on a project that we can't just do the best possible project we can. There's still people trying to throw a stick in the spokes, and all I have to do is point a little farther down to the stadium and see exactly what happens when we get in that sort of headspace. To talk more about all of this, a disappointed uh, Jason Farr, City Councillor for Ward 2, and he is with us now. Hello, Jason. How are you doing today? Good, Scott. Thanks for having me on the program. All right. Your thoughts on all of this? Uh, you know, it's, I, I'm just reading the Waterloo record for today. Investors are building more high-rises near planned rail transit stations, and people are moving into them. Census counts and building permits show. It says several towers sprouted near three planned stations in downtown Waterloo. Three new census counts, Scott, reveal that neighborhoods around the stations are growing at triple the regional rate, adding over 1,000 residents since 2011. And as you know, it was 2011 that their council approved LRT, and they've been going steadfast at that project uh, ever since. Construction's up 66% near LRT stations. So that's the crux of it for me. I provided, I thought, a pretty good argument at the LRT subcommittee. In fact, it uh, inevitably landed uh, at the subcommittee as a unanimous decision to move forward. Uh, Obviously, all of those subcommittee members that are councillors were present for yesterday's vote, and they were consistent. Uh, However, everyone else on council was not. So it's still a bit surreal for me. I'm uh, still feeling a little bit um, like what happened. Uh, And hopefully we get some answers between now and ratification at council. So where is this? Is it a done deal? I mean, uh, uh, as you said, and it has been mentioned, that there really wasn't any opposition or reason for not doing this. I mean, after all, this is kind of the center of the city, including City Hall. Well, as I said yesterday at committee, uh, and, and, you know, maybe i got to rewind the tape and... Maybe I wasn't paying attention. I was there for the whole debate, uh, for the well, maybe out out of the room, maybe sixty seconds of the couple of hours that we debated this. But um, I heard maybe three, four arguments. Uh, some were very uh, general in the theme. Too many shifting sands. I heard. Uh, I'm worried about the taxpayers in this city. I heard. Councillor Ferguson, who has, uh, you know, I got respect for his uh, business acumen, his his savvy. He ran construction for three decades. Um, he he had an argument about uh, project uh, uh, scope creep. Um, now now, Councillor Ferguson has been a valued member of the LRT subcommittee. Uh, he was not in attendance for the vote, so maybe we wouldn't have been unanimous. We would have been near unanimous on the day that we did approve this Bay Street stop. But uh, I think maybe from that argument, and this is an afterthought, this is from you know trying to carefully consider uh, that opinion from someone who knows what he's talking about in construction, and look at the motion again. So I had to look at it again, and maybe we were too specific about saying, let's put a stop at bay. Uh, the motion is worded in a way where it could be misinterpreted, but ultimately, 
when you're talking about the scope, this Bay Street stop, according to the motion and Part B of the motion, has to be in accordance with what Metrolinks can deliver and can it be delivered within the billion-dollar budget that we have. And and so that question was to be answered for future uh, according to the motion in terms of is it possible through the scope and those people working on the project were going to get back to us on that. So maybe there's some conversation for future that we can have with that particular council counselor and others if if it was indeed that argument that they were using to base the decision on a lot of uh, counselors I, I, I honest I, I just I didn't hear a lot from op, the uh, the opposing uh, voters uh, other than you know maybe three or four one was very consistent and has been for some time counselor Chad Collins is opposing anything uh, with relation to LRT and he'll simply say to be consistent that's his uh, motto in future LRT votes but uh, no one else uh, took that approach in terms of an argument. So, you know, I, I'm, think, again, I'm a little bit, I'm just still a little bit distraught, a little bit confused, Scott. It, it's just, you know, I can understand losing uh, the vote here. And, and, you know, some people want this, some people don't want this. I, I understand that. But you'd think yeah. as, as a city council, once you decide to commit to something, that you commit to it 100% and still don't harbor feelings because you lost a vote or you're going to do everything you can to derail it. So, it, you know, it, it can't be all that it can be. Uh, yeah, and as you said off the top, I mean, you know, right now, nobody around the table has said to the province, here's the billion, give it to the one of the other communities that's in your long queue of communities that have higher order transit projects but don't have a budget. Or And then we'll pay back the estimated approximate, Scott, $70 million that legally we're uh, committed to paying back the province if we were to back out. So, so that's not on the table. So now, to your point, LRT is, you know, we asked for 100% funding years ago. We got 100% funding announced to us a few years ago, and we're well into the implementation stage. And and I don't know whether we need to remind uh, the, the public in Hamilton, and not just here in Ward 2, more and more that we are in the implementation stage. So to your point, absolutely, whether you're for LRT around the horseshoe or you've changed your opinion, you used to be, you were one of the many who voted in favor of saying yes to LRT on the B line if we get a billion bucks from the province, which we did, and if you've changed your mind, that's fine, but we're doing the project, so let's make it the best it can be. Let's look at ways we can make it the best it can be. And Scott, this this was... uh, 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 a Bay Street stop was the product of a, a, a second phase of public consultation. Yeah. This was uh, yes, delivered this in a letter back yeah. in the summer of 2016. So yeah. it all works to the timing. This wasn't a surprise mm. to anybody. So let me ask you this, Jason. Why wasn't there a Bay Street stop on this initially, if it's that important? Great, great question. And, and actually, Tom Jackson asked me that one this morning. We had a little email back and forth. Uh, and, and fair enough, uh, it, it wasn't. And um, uh, Summit talked informally about why isn't Bay Street on there. Um, the answer I would have received probably a year ago from someone, it might have been Paul Johnson, it might have been uh, Andrew Hope from Metrolinks. Uh, there's still possibilities to change and rearrange our stop components. Uh, so, you know, we were told, at least I was told as a LRT uh, subcommittee chairperson last year, and, and that, that it, it, you, there was adjustment uh, times available through this process. This is a multi-year 
$1 billion infrastructure process. And we were in a phase two of engagement. And you see, for, for example, a gauge stop that was planned taken away. And then through the PIC or public information centers and through hearing from the community, we put it back again. Yeah. So this is really an one extra stop, not two, because gauge was already planned, taken away, put back. And it was, it was, it was presented and voted on unanimously by the LRT subcommittee because it was a, such a strong argument to do so. Yeah, it, it just it makes total sense. Uh, what um, that being said, where is this now, Jason? I mean, is this a done deal? Can this be reversed? Is there further consultation? What are your options here? Well, with with all of the work that was done, and it's not just from the chamber. The chamber hosts the LRT task force, who is a, is a commenting body from the stakeholder side of our our task our LRT subcommittee. The long list of business leaders that nine councillors in a vote of nine to six said no to who were supportive of this stop that from the general area, whether they be BIAs or institutions or business leaders, uh, probably greatly outnumber when you consider who they represent, the number of people who went to the public information centers and asked for the gauge thing to be put back on by hundreds and hundreds, I'm sure. So we said no to them, but we also said no uh, to what currently in the area we receive an annual tax taxes, and I did this work with Larry Friday in our tax uh, department, it's $111,000 a year. In the heart of a downtown, it's awful sad what we take in, in terms of annual taxes in the heart of the downtown. If you just put 1,500 residential units down there, and I just read you off the top here from the Waterloo record today and what is going on in terms of construction up 66% near LRT stations, we would be in the five, six, seven million dollar a year range in that same neighborhood. So all of those facts were uh, Presented, but maybe not presented uh, fully enough or articulately enough. So maybe a council to answer your question, and the mayor is considering this, table the matter, since we also voted yesterday on now meeting as a collective, as a GIC. I protested but supported it in protest uh, monthly to discuss all things LRT instead of at the subcommittee where we're continuous. So it'll be for guys on the subcommittee and gals on the subcommittee. This will be like a, two meetings a month, but that's fine. Uh, we could maybe at that time tackle this uh, project and this possibility and this uh, uh, added stop and all the pros and all the cons in a more fuller and articulate way at our first new monthly GIC All Things LRT meeting. So that's if there's an appetite for those who've opposed this uh, report, this Bay Street stop yesterday at GIC, uh, to table it and, and discuss it again sometime. So we'll see, Scott. Uh, who, who opposed this? Are you at liberty to say? Oh, well, the, the vote is public record. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. easier for me to tell you who's in favor. Okay. So Ward 1s through 4, Councillors Johnson, Farr, Green, and Marula supported it. The mayor supported it, and Councillor Whitehead supported it. He, he's a member of the LRT subcommittee, and he heard the fuller argument at the LRT subcommittee, and he made some very good arguments as to why we should support it. So your gut feeling here, Jason, what do you think is going to happen? You know, I almost didn't want to talk to you today, and it's not nothing to do with you personally or the good listeners of CHML. It's just you can probably hear I'm still a little distraught over this because yeah. I really, I, I know it's politics, and you win some and you lose some, but I really do feel that there wasn't a strong enough argument from the side that voted in favor of this. You really hit the nail on the head when you opened. There's all sorts of good reasons to do this, and whether you support this project or not, the project is an implementation stage. So you ought to, as an elected official, 
do what's best for the project. Try to make it as good as possible. Councillor Whitehead and I have argued publicly and not publicly about some of his views on LRT, but I'll give him credit for this. He constantly, uh, at least lately, has shared that all he's doing is asking as many questions as possible to make this project as great a success as we can possibly make it. That is in our control. And I didn't hear, unfortunately, I feel still, a strong enough argument for nine votes to go against the Bay Street stop yesterday. I just didn't. Uh, Kaden Loomis of the Chamber said uh, this is the city's first and biggest regret with the implementation of LRT. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I said something similar to the CBC uh, yesterday. They talked to me. You, at least, I had 24 hours to cool off, and I'm still hot. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty significant because I hope uh, you know, more than ever, uh, especially having cooled off now, that this is an indication that we're going to go full on, full of buster every time an LRT issue becomes before council because it's just not productive. We are implementing LRT, so let's make it the best it can be. I'm going to use that as a refrain. I'm going to borrow that from you. So, so it, inst- I, we, I hope that we're not just going to obstruct because we don't like the idea of LRT. Really, if you don't like it, and you already have nine that aren't interested in a Bay Street stop, maybe we ought to start talking about how do we get the dough to pay back legally what we're bound to pay back, mm-hmm. the 70 to $80 million committed, uh, and Council Marula is asking for an update on that figure. And who, what community is going to get our billion dollars? I had a senior yesterday. I was watching the Pee Wee hockey game. She's been opposed to LRT, a good friend of mine from Ward 5, Bubba. And we had a really good conversation about it. And her main argument was, we don't need any frills in Hamilton. And I said, so which community does? If you even want to consider it and call it a frill, some of us look at it more scientifically as an economic builder, environmentally uh, 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 responsible, um, uh, multimodal, complete street, uh, sustainable city kind of objective, LRT. But if you want to just call it a, a, a frill, well, why aren't we? If you are going to define it just as an extra or something fluffy, what, what what's makes Hamilton not good enough in all those other communities that will get the billion dollars that are waiting in the queue for higher order transit? And we had a really good discussion about that. There well, were two expletives, by the way, but we're old friends, so we could get away with well it. Well said. Good for you. I ask that all the time. Jason Farr but with the City Councilor Ward 2, City of Hamilton. Good luck, Jason. Keep up the fight. Thanks. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So when you think of Donald Trump, what do you think of? Well, it seems lately what I think of most when I hear of Donald Trump is Russia, Russia, Russia. It just seems that every time his name comes up, sooner or later, Russia also comes up, which seems odd to me. Uh, And while he seems to be fighting with some of our allies, he's has a very interesting relationship with Russia, Russia, Russia. So now, of course, uh, we're, I guess, experiencing the fallout of what happens when uh, Trump's security advisor uh, has to step down or is fired, forced to resign, whatever way you want to look at this, uh, because of his uh, ties with Russia and uh, cooperation. I don't know. What are they talking about? And this has been going on since the actual election campaign. Of course, now that this has come to the forefront, raising lots of questions and um, uh, mysteriously, very quickly, 
uh, all of a sudden uh, the advisor is gone. To talk more about all of this, John Colarusso is with us, PhD, professor of anthropology, linguistics and languages, uh, an expert on uh, this part of the world. He is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine, Scott. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. You think that this is the beginning of the end for Trump? I do. I, I do think so. Uh, there's a couple of factors at play here. Uh, one is, of course, Russia, as you as you said, um, and this seems to have a depth to it in terms of, of uh, uh, people involved and of time that is is seems to be growing the more we learn about it. Uh, the other factor is that it, it falls in line with the fact that Trump lacks legitimacy as a president. He was uh, not the one taking the popular vote, and the only reason he's there is because of the anachronism of the Electoral College that the Americans have foolishly allowed to stay in place without ever having any real function, but now it's caused chaos. So I think that Trump is, uh, is facing two mammoth problems that really uh, there's no way of solving these. And I imagine at some point, probably not in the very distant future, this will spell a, a forced resignation on his part or impeachment process. Uh, getting back to, uh, you said you broke this down into two parts, Russia and the way he was elected. Uh, at the end of the day, he was elected the way that they have, you know, he was elected legal, uh, legally. I mean, this is, as far as we know, the, the way, you know, the way that things have transpired. Is it really that? I mean, are people not beyond that now? I mean, we have what we have. They have what they have. Uh, let's move on. Do you think there's still uh, information there that can come out that may jeopardize his presidency? Well, I don't think there's any information in terms of voting fraud or something that he was bizarrely talking about earlier. Um, I think that part of his, <clears throat> excuse me, part of his conduct and style uh, works against him uh, in in any way, trying to allay fears, trying to uh, bridge the the ideological polarization that now typifies the United States. Uh, he's acting as though he had a huge majority. Uh, he's acting very superficially, very glibly. He's still in TV mode, uh, not to denigrate TV, mm. but he is not um, uh, acting in a presidential fashion. Um, and this is uh, not uh, helping his case. Uh, I think he's incapable of acting any other way. And um, uh, I think we're going to see that there are links with Russia, things that have gone on with Russia, compromising situations for Trump regarding Russia that are going to be devastating uh, in short order. Now, he's talking about leaks. I'm not quite sure what he means by leaks. I mean, the intelligence community is at its discretion to release information it feels might be to the public's welfare if it does not compromise uh, agents in the field, the people, the sources. They're not worried about politicians. They're worried about their own sources. But I think that they do have the authority and the power to uh, release information if they see fit. Uh, so I don't understand what this talk of leaks is. I don't understand what this billionaire Feinberg being dredged up. I, I would not take the job if I were him. Um, so there's some very odd and sort of almost desperate things that seem to be floating about now um, that, to my mind, seem to be really a waste of time and energy. It's, it seems odd that this all came down, actually the day that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was there, uh, in regard to Flynn anyway, and, um, and it, it, he was gone and that was that. Uh, there was rumor whether he was actually fired or whether uh, he resigned or, or asked to resign or what have you. And then the next day, 
Trump kind of comes at it from the other side by saying what a good man he was and how it was the media's fault that, that this has all happened to him. How can you say that when you're the one that let him go? Well, you can't do it rationally, and this is part of the reason that there's now a very strong uh, uh, move afoot to to um, declare Trump, uh, in some way, at least in public opinion, as mentally unfit. And uh, I think that his distortion of reality is typical of certain psychiatric conditions. I mean, the, the one that comes up is narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, it's not <clears throat> not hard to realize that that he has this condition. Uh, whether or not it makes him fit to be president is another issue, but what is typically happening now is that anything that is bad for him, that is negative, uh, he will try to deny it, he will try to blame the other. Uh, and um, this is a uh, very limited toolkit, so to speak. And I, This is why I think that we're not going to see any substantial change in Trump as time goes on. More uh, the same, more of the chaos. Uh, how do you sell that, though? How how do you how do you convince the public, especially when he does have a base? How do you convince the public that he is unstable? I mean, that's going to be difficult to prove, is it not? Well, I think. I mean, it may I be think, easy when you're sitting here watching television and such, yeah. but removing the president's a little bit a little bit more difficult, isn't it? Well, it is. It should be difficult. It shouldn't be something that's done lightly because the president often has to make very un, undesirable and unpleasant decisions. Uh, I think that Trump has already lost a significant part of his base. I can only guess as to why. But, uh, for example, the inauguration turnout was very low, regardless of what they may say. Uh, and that was a bit of a surprise to me, because I thought he did have significant um, wide-based public support in certain areas. Um, I think part of the problem also rests with the Democrats, whose liberal dialogue had degenerated into who's going to what bathroom, instead of worrying about all the people that were sliding into poverty, uh, the typical, the usual base in the, the now post-industrial states of the United States. Um, so I think that uh, the the effects of the Trump presidency are going to be deleterious, uh, not just for traditional urban liberal zones in, in the United States, but I think that's going to creep through a wide range of things. Already, for example, the coal miners are very upset with them because of his policies on repealing Obamacare. They've had second thoughts about that. Um, and there's just, uh, there's just um, an issue of, of time and damage, I think, um, that, that at some point will force the Republican majority in Congress to face up to their own prospects, perhaps for re-election to the House come the fall of 18, things like this. Um, there will be damage from this man, and it's going to affect the rank and file in the United States. And at that point, they'll be more receptive to some of these messages that right now they'll view as elitist, elitist you know, sour grapes sort of thing. Uh, Trump will use social media to convince uh, the public that, that, you know, that he's being framed, that this is happening much the same way he was elected. Do, do you not think that that is as strong or if not stronger than those forces against him? Well, I'll tell you, I, mean, I was a security advisor for a background diplomat for the Clinton administration, Democrats. I'm sort of, I'm a dual citizen, been here 40 years, and uh, I've always voted Democratic, and um, I have no illusions about Hillary Clinton and so forth, blah, 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 and so on. I think the, um, the, I would say the crucial thing here is that 
this man is, is creating such an environment of instability, not only within the United States, but on the world stage, uh, without any real substantial alternatives to the material or the agreements and patterns that are in place, that at some point, I think there will be a, a very strong backlash uh, against them from, from a wide range of quarters. I do think that um, uh, the, there are mechanisms uh, for removing him, uh, and I think that uh, uh, the important thing to keep in mind is he has no friends. Um, he abused and and treated with scorn some of the eminent members of the GOP, um, and uh, he has a, an urban privilege background. He's not part of the traditionalist more rural components of the United States that often vote Republican. Um, there is a, a disconnect here. There's, there's an aberration. And you ask about his tweeting and his use of social media. I don't know about you, but I'm bored with his stuff. I don't really yeah. pay much attention to it anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I think in some way the limited toolkit that he has means that I'm, I'm not the first one. I'm not the only one that's going to feel that way. Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to become very ineffective very soon. Uh, we talked earlier about how it was the anti-establishment movement that put him where he is. What do other parties, including his own, the Republican Party, and Democrats have to do to combat that? I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, there's still a, a large segment of the American population who are unhappy with the status quo and feel that they have been left behind. Whatever Trump does or doesn't do, and again, they they knew well aware what Trump was long before all this started, and we're still willing to select him above the status quo. Uh, what do those parties have to do to win those people back over? Well, I think that to some extent, it sounds like a bit of a contradiction, but I think they have to think beyond their party affiliation because what is happening under this man is that the United States is losing its position of leadership. Um, it had a weakened position, actually, under President Obama because of reasons of Obama's ideology. Um, but I think now they have to realize that there will be an era beyond Trump, whether he lasts uh, eight years or lasts eight months, um, and that there will be a judgment uh, meted out to them by history. And they're going to have to act in a way that I think will preserve their legacies and their their, uh, their reputations. This means, I think, in some way, setting aside partisanship, trying to find solutions for place for people who are really hurting in the United States. And I think Trump's glib responses and his poor, his executively poor choice of cabinet members, by and large, uh, will not uh, bring any real relief to to the people in the U.S. that are hurting. Um, uh, I I grew up in the working zone, and and it's devastated. Uh, It's not at all clear to me what can be done to revitalize it. Certainly trade war is not the answer. Good point. But something has to be done. Something has to be done. And they have to overcome the, their traditional roles and their traditional dialogues and narratives. They have to come up with a new narrative. And I think the Democrats must face up to the fact that theirs failed. And I don't hear them doing that, but they're going to have to do that. They're going to get, have any future. And at the right. end of the day, John, isn't that where this discussion should start rather than how bad Trump is? No, Scott, I would hope so. Um, but, you know, it, the U.S. has always been a nation, part of whose identity is, is a moral crisis, moral struggle. 
And uh, I think in this case, this this ligament of civil war, for goodness sakes, uh, um, and I think this time it's going to lead them to ruin if they don't somehow back off and try to find uh, tangible ways of helping people who really need help. Um, and uh, this will take some real political leadership on the part of the Republicans and the Democrats. And I think uh, history is waiting. History is waiting to judge. And I think they have to keep that in mind. Hmm. Uh, obviously, Russia keeps coming up. Why is that? His business dealings with Russia, are, is there things there that aren't on the up and up that now he's being held uh, sort of on the fence between Russia and the United States? They've got dirt on him, in other words. Is that I think what they this have dirt, Yeah, they have dirt on him for sure. I've had a lot of dealings with the Russians. I've always tried to, to have a, a kind of level of trust and, and make you know, have a clean relationship with my Russian counterpart when I was involved in this sort of thing. Um, and I think that there is obviously money that has flowed from Russia to, to the Trump campaign. I think that they worked against the Democrats, uh, obviously to his benefit. Uh, I think also that he, they're probably compromising movies of him, uh, from his 2013 visit. Um, they do things like that. They're masters at that. Hmm. Um, and, um, I was just recently myself the last two years sort of, they made an effort to get me into that kind of situation. So, uh, but, you know, I, I held back and I said, let's be clean, let's play it clean. And they finally said, okay, we'll play it clean. Whatever uh, so, happened to all that stuff that apparently they had on him? That kind of died down. You know, they'll use it. And when he called Putin that day, that was the very day that Putin released to the local prominent media within Russia the fact that he had arrest, arrested all the characters that were involved in the hacking. One of the poor men had a, had a bag over, put over his head for theatrical purposes. You know, it's a real arrest. You know? uh, and uh, they'll go on trial, and trial will be a perfect place to release any and all information that uh, Putin sees fit to, to do so. It will be a treason trial, which means that technically it can be closed, but Putin can open it as, as much as he wants. So Trump, Trump and Trump's associates probably could stand uh, or, or could gain financially from better ties with Russia. I think some question of that. I think he gained from ties with Russia with his campaign, and I think they have dirt on him big time. And they will put it up on Facebook if they if they have the whim to do so, and he's not cooperating right now. There's, you know, Lavrov and Tillerson need well fighting down in eastern Ukraine is going back off now by the twentieth. That sort of stuff. Uh, we'll abide by Minsk, you know, we'll do something with Syria. Or not. Yeah, but in a sense, so this is sort of normal diplomacy. Most nations have, have any complexity in size, have multi layered uh, antagonism, antagonisms in one zone, cooperation in another, whatnot. This is how international relations work. But something else is afoot here, and it costs a general, um, well, national security advisor. Um, Flynn, uh, by all accounts, a very upright man, it cost him his position. He had been photographed sitting at table for celebrations of RT, Russian television, or whatever. Um, and there, there is some, some question of uh, the nature of his links. The fact that he did diplomacy, so, so-called, before he was actually uh, sworn into office, that's nonsense. That's the Logan Act. It was written into law in 1799. It has never been used in a case. It's probably not constitutional by American standards. Uh, I did that routinely. It's called back-channel diplomacy. That's why there are non-governmental organizations out there. They do that. They set up the scenario. The the professionals then come in and and legalize things. It makes everything very efficient. Uh, This was nonsense. This was pretext. 
um, there was something going on that he did not like, that he didn't talk to Pence. You know, Leon Firth was, was Al Gore's national security advisor. The vice president has his own NSA. And um, there was no obligation whatsoever for Flynn to reveal everything he'd done to Pence. That's nonsense again. Hmm. So, uh, so he's the scapegoat. He's a scapegoat, yeah, yeah. He, he was a man of integrity. He probably could not fit into the crazy house that Trump had assembled. So Russia can't be happy with all the attention that Trump or this is getting right now because the man that was their man of the hour is now being uh, booted around the United States and people mm-hmm. asking all kinds of questions. Where mm-hmm. is Russia on this now? Well, uh, Russians are, are, are cautious. So they're going to wait and see how it does play out. I think they already have suspicions that it's probably not going to go very well. Uh, I've already seen one Russian uh, opinion piece about how to deal with President Pence. Uh, wow. so they're planning, yeah, they're planning ahead, um, which is responsible. They should. Um, it may not mean anything, but uh, I, that is part of how they're trying to deal with with stuff. Uh, and I think at some point they feel that Trump is not just no longer useful, but actually perhaps dangerous. They will release compromising information, and then they'll sit back and and have a grand time watching the Western world fall apart. So at what point does he become less of a help and more of a hindrance to Russia? Are they close to that now, especially as, de- as, dig as, peop- as deep as people seem to be digging with this? I think so. I think the intelligence, intelligence community feels an urgency here because I had no longer t- just, I, I was on CTV on Tuesday, and I was talking to the, the man here at MAC, uh, public relations officer, and I said, this is going to take months. And, and later that night, the headlines were, you know, there was constant money flow and so forth into the Trump campaign. They're moving very rapidly on this. I think they feel that the nation's plunged into a crisis. If the United States cannot extract itself from this mess, I think it's a very important message here for Canada. And that is that the moral values, the public values, the traditions of the Western world have to be taken up by some other voice. And I think Canada, in fact, is very well positioned to do that. It doesn't have the power and clout, but it has the moral authority. And this would be an excellent opportunity for this nation to step forward and try to get the Western world through this mess until some some better scenario emerges. Um, Otherwise, there's going to be something like Germany. Maybe England could do it. I don't know, but I see no signs of that there. Um, And I, I think that this is something that Justin Trudeau should perhaps ponder. Um... Where do you see this one month from now in regard to the Russian connection? Well, I would think that, I don't know, Scott, that's very hard for me to predict. I would suggest that we'll see more chaos uh, uh, between media and the intelligence community on the one hand and Trump on the other and his associates and his acolytes. There are a few scattered in Congress that seem to be willing to do his bidding, not very many, oddly enough. Um, and I think that the Russians see the very dysfunctionality itself as to their advantage. So I think they'll probably let that go uh, as long as possible. But when Trump, to, to counter things, and he does it in a ham-fisted way, starts to perhaps threaten Russia, he's already demanded Crimea being handed back, which is never going to happen. Uh, I think at that stage, when he's trying to compensate for for his weakening and eroding position by attacking Russia or, or being very harsh toward Russia, then they may decide to release things. And that could very well be within three to four weeks. Unbelievable. And we haven't even talked about Israel. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it just seemed. Another phone call, Scott. Oh, that is that is. Uh, John Colarusso has been with us, PhD professor in anthropology, linguistics, languages, uh, specializing in all things Russia. Of course, from McMaster University. John, absolute pleasure. Thanks again for the expertise. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. One of the fallouts are, you know, some of the, I guess there's lots of fallout, lots of collateral damage with what's happening in the United States. Uh, We are seeing refugees coming from the United States, mostly Somalia, uh, from the United States into places like Manitoba and Quebec and asking for refugee status. To talk more about all of this, how big is it, the problem? I guess about 400 have come across within the last year. David Hyde is with us, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. He is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us and uh, be a part of this ever-unraveling scenario. Boy, it's hard to keep up. How big is this issue with these immigrants coming into Canada? Well, it certainly is a growing problem, Scott. And the more that the... Obviously, the rhetoric's been there from uh, Mr. Trump for a while, but now that we're seeing, um, you know, more strict enforcement by ICE uh, in terms of on the American side of the immigration um, enforcement teams, now that we're seeing, um, you know, the, the travel ban that rolled out that for now is, 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 is in abeyance, but is likely to come back in one form or another, um, these are things that obviously cause people to have to um, change their plans and people that would were either in the states or wanted to go to the states are now viewing Canada as um, as a better option because obviously we don't have the level of difficulty and the level of you might say um, almost an anti-refugee stance which is the unfortunate uh, position it seems uh, you know increasingly in the US what do we know about these people that are coming in well, you know, I mean, uh, obviously, these are, there's, a, there's a range of them, right? There, there are some people that uh, inevitably know that um, they don't have long in the States. I mean, for a variety of reasons, Scott, whether it be they're people that have come from certain, certain countries that um, perhaps they have family members that may have been naturalized or they have kids, some of whom that were born in the U.S., but some of them weren't or that they weren't born in the U.S. themselves, there's really no dispensation provided here now. So the reality for, you know, we're seeing broken families. We're seeing, um, you know, only the people that were born in the U.S. are allowed to stay. Uh, we're seeing a wide range of things, that all of which leads people to, A, be nervous and live in fear, and, B, look at, they say, the Canadian border, look at the pronouncements of our prime minister, for example, look at the way Canada approaches refugees in general, and thinking, well, look, you know, I have a choice here. I'm either going to risk going back to my home country and being persecuted or, or being separated a whole world away from my family, possibly, or I and or I and my family are going to try and seek refugee status across the border in Canada. So there's just obviously it's a uh, whatever they do is a risk, Scott, but it's a better risk, much um, you know, smarter risk to take to try to come into Canada. Are they refugees or are they people who have committed some sort of illegal act and are being deported from the United States? Well, and this is the, it depends who you ask, Scott, and there's a lot of, um, you know, definitional arguments here, right? Because obviously there's a big difference between an, an immigrant and a refugee. I mean, a refugee is someone that's fleeing persecution and is fleeing harm, uh, threats possibly, um, you know, and, and they, there's a, a, a sense of urgency or, or, or imminence to their, the unrest that's in their country of origin. 
Whereas, you know, uh, of course, and these two can overlap, of course, but immigrants are typically people that have now applied to, to you know, if they're a legal immigrant, they've applied to get into the country by a variety of means, and they're, they're being processed, or ultimately they're allowed to, to, to you know, to, to, be, to emigrate into the country, and then they're given legal status. So in the States, there's a lot of people that the Obama administration went very soft on to a degree, and understandably so, I think, in many quarters, which is if people that came along long time ago they were an illegal uh, at the time 20 30 years ago they had children they've had family members they've been paying tax and doing work but there's not a documentation trail and 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 to a certain degree there is illegality uh, in and amongst some of these people other people have you know they might have they might have been fleeing some kind of persecution scot but they didn't they didn't claim refugee status. They just came into the country. Right. And so technically that is illegal. So, yeah, there's, there's really a fine line between, you know, between the two concepts. But no doubt, um, you know, refugees have a more valid claim considering that they're an imminent threat or under imminent harm where they're currently situated. And this is the difficulty now is that the Obama administration seemed to be more looking for a path to citizenship for these people looking to give them an opportunity to integrate into society legally or at least in an acceptable way, giving them some kind of status. And that's not happening now. The, the, the Trump administration's approach is antithetical to that. So if these people tried to cross at a border crossing, they wouldn't get in? In terms of from, uh, from the United Canada States. into the States? No, from the United States into Canada. Well, I mean, th- th- this is the, it depends what they're claiming. Obviously, if, if they claim refugee status uh, at the border, you know, Canada has policies that they, that they will use. They're not going to let people just free flow across. They're going to have to work with them to understand each individual case. But if you have someone that, is, that legally is not allowed to enter Canada, that doesn't have legal status and can't explain themselves at the border, then yes, they will, they'll get turned back because uh, you know, they, they, they obviously don't have a legal right to be in the country. The, the, the issue is, Scott, some of these folks are trying to th- wonder, with the way that the enforcement has now stepped up in the States, and we're seeing it all over the news in terms of people being arrested, um, people that were left alone by the Obama administration that are now you know, under imminent kind of threat of incarceration or deportation, some of those people, especially if they have family in the States as well, are looking across the border and figuring, well, look, if I can try and slip across there, if, and, and you've seen people taking risks coming across the border in, 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 in very much sub-zero conditions, uh, risking you know, uh, injury to themselves and harm from, from, from frostbite, etc., because that's how desperate they feel, as though they may have more of a life in Canada. If they arrive here as a, in, in, even as an illegal in some sense, but they're able to claim through the Canadian processes, they have, a, they have a, a possible light at the end of the tunnel. There's no light on the other end of the tunnel, unfortunately, in the U.S., Scott. So what happens to these people when they cross into Canada illegally? Well, if, if, obviously, if they are caught at the border and if they're entering without the valid papers. Well, even if they're, like, again, we're, we're hearing stories of them crossing farmers' fields into Manitoba and sure. Quebec and stuff. What, what happens to those people? Well, I mean, obviously, if once they are um, apprehended, I guess, or once the authorities become aware of them and they and they start to work with them, I would I would suspect that most of them are claiming some kind of refugee status. So, in some cases, that's what they're trying to do. 
because any lawyer that's worth their salt is going to advise someone like that who's coming into a country from another country. You know, the, the claim could be, Scott, that they are facing deportation. They're facing, in, in the States I'm talking about here, yep, yep. they're facing deportation back to a country that's not safe. They're facing the emotional trauma of being ripped apart from their families. So, you know, I, I would not be surprised at all that some of the folks coming across are claiming uh, a refugee-type status, and Canada is well-known for its, um, you know, humane treatment and deferential treatment to refugees. So the, the, is, is the yeah. threat of deportation from the United States back to Somalia enough to get somebody landed immigrant status in Canada? I can't answer that for sure, Scott, but I believe that that is one of the arguments that's being put forward. I do not believe there's precedent for that or there's test cases that have gone through, again, because this is also new. What Donald Trump really has done coming into power and, and one might argue making true on his campaign promises, normally these promises are rhetorical and they're there to kind of keep, you know, uh, ginny up the base. But when you actually get in power and you're sobered by the fact of seeing a fuller picture and not having to now campaign in the same way, uh, of course you're going to stick true to some of the fundamentals that you committed to, but you're also going to ratchet back slightly. You're also going to balance your approach. And the, the issue here is that, that Trump is not doing that in many cases. And when it comes to you know, immigration, refugees, and borders, um, the people over there in the states that aren't that are illegal, or they are a refugee, or they want, or they you know previously have been a refugee recently, they are all running scared, and they're very very concerned. And some of them would need to go back to countries where they would be, uh, you know, facing threat, uh, facing um, you know all types of different human rights, and possibly. Um, you know, personal safety issues. So that would be, I think, a very interesting legal test case that some of those people may end up claiming, I believe they will claim, that they're claiming uh, either refugee status or landed immigrant status of some type. And your lawyers here, Scott, are the ones that can talk more about this. But in Canada, based on the fact that there is an imminent threat to them of deportation by the Trump administration back to an unsafe country. Uh, you anticipate this increasing over the summer? I mean, we've seen what happens uh, through the brutal winter in Manitoba. Are you worried that come summer this is just going to open up? Well, I think, I think it's, only gonna, you know, it's only likely to get worse, Scott. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is the winds that are blowing from, from the Trump administration. Yeah. And, and whether they're going to be able to, uh, the Democrats that are in the various seats of power there, be able to kind of calibrate this a little bit and end up getting a, you know, something that's not quite as, as extreme, one might argue, uh, as, as the approach being taken now. But I think if the, things, if the course remains the same, and if the enforcement activity, which is ramped up significantly in the United States over the last 10 days, literally, if that continues to ramp up, they put more, more uh, ICE officers on the street, they, they fund it and push it harder, uh, and they go beyond just rounding up uh, criminals. Because the focus here, Scott, was supposed to be rounding up hardened criminals so or are people the... that had committed crimes. Well, here's the issue. Everyone who is remaining in the country uh, illegally, so that you can say they're an undocumented immigrant, that is an illegal act. Right. So technically, they yeah. do cross the threshold of being a criminal in the U.S., even though you and I both know, Scott, there's obviously different types and categories and grades of criminal. 
And, you know, this is one where it's almost an administrative sanction, you might argue, as opposed to an actual criminal code offense. But in the States, it does meet a criminal statute. So ICE can round up these people as criminals and ship them out. So you've got, you know, a 50-year-old father of five, one of his kids that's 25, uh, you know, wasn't born in this country, so the two of them technically ought not to be here. But the four other children were all born here, have all been, uh, of course, are American citizens, have a right to be here. And like I said, Obama was saying, look, you know, we're going to work on this, but in the meantime, we'll allow you to stay in the country for human, you know, kind of decency reasons. That's going away here. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Let's bring in uh, Chris Collette, Associate Canadian Immigration Lawyer, and uh, is with us now. Hello, Chris. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to uh, to uh, join us. So it, it, let me ask you this question, Chris. So if you have a Somali refugee who's in the United States and he's worried about being deported and then illegally comes to Canada, uh, does that make him eligible for refugee status in Canada? So if a person does cross into Canada illegally, uh, meaning they don't go to illegal border crossing, they do what is happening now in Manitoba, they uh, can claim refugee protection, but they would still need to establish that they qualify as a refugee or a person in need of protection under Canada's immigration laws. And how difficult is that? So uh, would, would that fall? Would would that uh, would that uh, work for Somalian refugees? Uh, I, I believe what they would have to demonstrate is that they are uh, at ri- they have a well-founded fear of persecution um, because of race, religion, nationality, or membership in a social group in Somalia, in their country of nationality. So, uh, uh, is that difficult to prove for someone from Somalia? Well, a lot of these claims uh, are, you know, you, you need documentation to support your claims. Many refugee claimants don't have it when they come here, and so uh, they're just uh, basically forwarding their cases on, on the basis of their testimony and their word. Uh, ultimately, it'll be up to the uh, Refugee Protection Division of Canada to assess uh, all of the evidence they provide, all of the testimony they give, and determine whether they are, have a credible fear or not. Well, could it be that some Somalians would get status, some wouldn't? Yeah, well, each claim would be addressed, assessed independently, so it depends on what kind of claims they're making, what the basis of their claim is, and what kind of proof that they have um, of, of the, the risk of fear or persecution that they're facing. Uh, what if they don't get accepted? So they've crossed illegally, they, they, they uh, present their case, it's not accepted. What happens then? Do they go back to the United States? Do they go back to Somalia? So everybody who claims refugee protection from the outset gets a conditional removal order issued against them. Um, If they then lose their uh, claims at the Refugee Protection Division, there are uh, certain rights of appeal, depending on uh, whether their claim is dismissed as being totally unfounded or whether it's just a matter of they didn't have enough proof. They have different rights of appeal. Some will appeal to the Refugee Appeal Division, and some will go straight to federal court to challenge the decisions. If neither of those claims are uh, appeals are successful then they may be subject to removal proceedings uh, to their country of nationality 
So they would just avoid the United States and go back. So once they come to Canada, it's not the United States problem anymore, I guess, is the question. Uh, and that might be one way to put it, yes, but this is a very fluid situation, especially with this recent influx. And so who knows if there's going to be any uh, you know, administrative changes coming down from on high. So again, getting back to the people who are coming in from Somalia, I, I mean, I mean, wouldn't one, if one's being persecuted in Somalia, wouldn't they all be? I mean, how can there be different scenarios? Either you're coming from a banned country or you're not. Why wouldn't it be a blanket for all of them? Uh, so I, I, again, uh, you know, some countries, uh, it's recognized that the entire country is an unsafe place. For example, Iraq. Somalia, that's not necessarily the case. Um, they, they would still have to prove that they personally, and not just uh, you know, the entire country, but they personally are, are, have a well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, is there any truth? Uh, we were talking with David Hyde, security consultant. Obviously, if people haven't gone through the correct channels, they then become, uh, I guess, deemed as, as a criminal. And, and we're hearing that only the bad people are getting pushed out. Does that mean that the people that are coming into Canada uh, aren't being vetted and we're getting bad ones? The refugee vetting process is uh, it's pretty rigorous. Uh, you know, as part of the, the, the hearing, the refugee hearings, they also have to, you know, not show that they are not inadmissible on grounds of security or violating human or international rights, serious criminality. These are all potential things which could bar their claims if they come to light during their hearings. Where do you see this situation with Manitoba and Quebec going, especially through the summer when the more warmer uh, months approach? Well, uh, so this is not... Uh it's not a problem that necessarily originated as a result of this uh, Trump executive order. Uh, the the re- refugee crossings have been increasing, you know, before Trump came into power. Uh, however, you know, now with this executive order issued, and who knows what's going to happen when it when it expires, uh, what Trump's going to do in that case. You know, if if the situation continues, I would expect once the weather improves that there would be uh, additional border crossings. So is, if you're somebody in the United States from uh, Somalia or, or one of those other countries that are involved in the ban, um, is it best for you to try to cross illegally or legally? Where, where will the government give you uh, uh, a better hand up? So if they do present themselves at a legal border crossing, uh, they would be turned away under the safe third country agreement. For many, that, in their minds, leaves the only option of trying to cross in illegally, although, you know, this is illegal, so it's not something that we can counsel people to do. Um, it, 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 it is not uh, permissible under the law to cross in illegally, um, you know, bypassing a legal border crossing. Would the U.S. care about this, or do they, as long as, as in their minds, as long as they're getting rid of them, they don't care? I, you'd have to defer and ask the, the U.S. officials. <laughs> I'm not sure what they, what they would say on that point. Uh, do you see policy having to, uh, um, do you think new policy has to be drawn up, new laws, something has to be done in order to, uh, in order to control this? How do we control this? Uh, it's a very good question. I know, you know, the Safe Third Country Agreement, people have been um, arguing for years, lawyers have been arguing for years that it's, it should be, you know, repealed or modified. Um, this, these concerns have now increased as a result of what's happening in the U.S. right now. Um, but right now, there's no indication that any changes will be made. I know the Liberal government has said they don't have... The most recent thing I heard is that they don't have any plans to make any changes in that respect. Uh, but it would be up to them, up to the Canada Border Services Agency, to, um, you know, bring in policy if they want to, you know, address this unique situation which is going on right now.
Associate Canadian immigration lawyer Chris Collette has been with us uh, talking about uh, refugees crossing from the United States into Canada. Chris, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.